Hi everyone, this is Brian Reisman, host of Side Jams, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Be sure to keep up with the show on Facebook, Instagram, or through my Brian Reisman account on Twitter. Hi, this is Rick Allen with Def Leppard, and you're listening to Side Jams with Brian Reisman. Billy Cobham is a living legend. He's my favorite drummer of all time, someone who I've been listening to since high school. My drum teacher introduced me to his stellar playing, notably from his iconic 1973 debut album Spectrum, and I've followed his career ever since. Billy, who goes by Bill these days, first rose to prominence playing with the Mahavishnu Orchestra, and he has played with so many people, from Miles Davis to Ron Carter, and performed all over the world. In recent years, he has released albums including Palindrome, time-lapse photos, and the four-part Drum and Voice series, which I highly suggest that you check out. This year, Bill has been doing a series of interactive virtual masterclasses. The next one is on Sunday, October 24th, between noon and 3 p.m. Eastern, and then one on Sunday, November 28th, also at the same time. His co-instructors and peers include, in October, Gary Husband and Dom Famularo, who will also join him in November with Dennis Chambers and Will Calhoun. Bill will also be playing some concerts in Germany, Italy, Austria, Armenia, and Switzerland between October 30th and December 6th. When Bill is not playing music, he loves to engage in photography. In fact, he's been shooting throughout his professional music career. For episode 54 of Side Jams, we talk about many of the different photos he has taken, the changing nature of photography, and the different cameras he's used. We also get into some other topics like advances in technology, his recent hip replacement surgery, having an out-of-body experience during a concert, and many of his international travels. He has been living in Bern, Switzerland for decades now. This interview was recorded back in May. I had a huge backlog of interviews for Side Jams as a lot of opportunities came up simultaneously. And I also took a couple of months off in the summer to take a break after cranking out so many of them. But the show is back, and this episode is all still relevant now, and it's a fascinating interview. It was really great to speak with Bill again. So let's dive right into it. Well, good morning. Good morning. Well, thanks for taking the time to chat. I appreciate it. Not a problem. Yeah. But I'll, be, I'll really enjoy my sleep once I'm done. <laughs> have you been up late? No, I just go to sleep early. <laughs> you know, you, you have to understand it's... Uh, it's what now, about uh, 10 past or thereabouts uh, past 8 in the morning here. Yeah, it's uh, 2 a.m., 2.15 a.m. here. Yeah, so it's 8.15 here in Bern. And uh, normally we're not up before 10. <laughs> uh, I thought you'd be up earlier. Oh, I know. Yeah, no, I used, those were in the younger days, you know. Yes, now yeah. I have that, that pension of freedom of like, yeah, I'll be up when I get up. You know, so I've, I got to get back in the habit. You know. uh, well, sorry to get you up early. That's cool. You, you yeah. know, what's funny is I actually usually get up about 11. And sometimes it's like, people mm. like, well, we got to do it in the morning. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, when I used to do video junkets for movies, I'd be up. Yeah, you got to be here at like 830. And I'm, I'm in an like hour oh. commute from Long Island. I was like, okay. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, I was just looking again at our Jazz Ed cover story from a couple of years ago. Wow. Yeah. I finally got to see you live. At, I think it was my father's place out in Long Island. Oh, Epi, yeah, Roslyn. And that was around the time of your birthday too. Really? I think wasn't it? I felt like your family was there and people brought. No, out- no, it wasn't my birthday. That that's a problem. See, my birthday's in May, and this was done down around December. 
It was October. It was Halloween. October, October. I went right after Halloween. So was yeah. it a belated? Was it a belated? Yeah. Uh... Mm-hmm. No, was it was just a big surprise, and I hadn't seen those uh, three young ladies that that came to see me were my family along with my brother, and I had not seen them in five years except my brother. I mean, I see my brother. Oh wow! But, I, but one one daughter is living in Idaho, and another daughter living in San Antonio, Texas, and the other daughter is living in 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 the Suva, which is in Micronesia. And they so, all came out for that show. Yeah, it took them a year to get it together. Nobody told Bill, you know, so the big thing was they wanted to come and say, hey, how you doing? We're here. And that would have, I don't think I would have been able to finish, make the show. Uh, <laughs> I'm not expecting to see can, can you imagine if the, if the gig was canceled <laughs> or oh, postponed the gig. <laughs> it's so, when I think about it, you know, Suva is, is far. It's in Polynesia. It's a down yeah. way in the Pacific. And well, she's a, a head of the, of the Peace Corps there. And uh, cool. so it's not easy to get in and out from there, no matter what. And, um, then you got another another one that the oldest one is you know pushing cows down in, in Texas and on a farm a ranch that uh, she has with her family and and the last one is got four kids and living up in near near Boise. Wow, with with her husband and they have a well. These Boise uh, and Texas are closer time zone. <laughs> yeah, wow, yeah, that just like. So I'm I'm just all about getting this thing done, and they show up, you know. And I'm like, now what? Do I? I mean, but it was good. It was, and my wife got them to to uh, time it so it would be after the show. Otherwise, I'm not too sure I could have played. Wow, that was very mm-hmm. emotional. Obviously, yeah, yeah. It's cool yeah, though, it a, Boise, Idaho. Have you been to? Have you visited your daughter in Boise? No, but I've been to Boise and. Uh, Boy, it's it's Z Z. <laughs> it's pretty Z out there. <laughs> We've been living in Europe for so in Switzerland for so long now. It's been like yeah, it's about uh, forty one years. Wow! Yeah. I remember the first time we did an interview like twenty years ago for Goldmine, I think, and that was you were telling mm-hmm. me you, you were talking about it how you moved then, and I think about that from time to time because you know we mm-hmm. talk about the pace of life and how. It's not like things are so drastically different. It's like people are fine. You know, people live long lives. You know, they're happy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I look at what's happened here in the last year. I feel like everything's gotten more frenetic. You know, people are used to this fast-paced life. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I've thought what it would be. I, my, my dream kind of writing gig would be to live in a month in a different European city. Maybe toss in a couple of cities in other parts of the world and just see what it's like, write about it and experience it. Mm-hmm. And, and then come back home and see how I feel. Well, yeah, I mean, it, the, the quality of, of the end product that you would write about based on the timeline that you're talking about after being here so long and realizing that I, I'm finally coming to grips with the fact that it's not only me. Um, there's a whole lot of expats here who've been here longer than me, and they still don't know what's going on. You mean just in terms of the world or just in terms yeah, of Switzerland? I mean, just in terms of Swiss, in Switzerland, uh, you, living in Europe, there are many things that happen and it changes. And, and to watch it happen, it takes time. Yeah. Investment of time. So you make an investment like that, 
you come, and I'm sure you would. You'd come with a, I'm sure you'd come with a package of of objectives that you want to achieve. Yeah, and, and you'd see it, and that's one way to look at it. And then you can just come and hang out with no objectives in mind. You know, just to walk around and uh, and sit down. Where we live here in in Bern is near the what there's an artist that named Paul Klee. Mm-hmm. And uh, he has a, a museum here, uh, an art art Painter. museum. It's yeah, yeah and, and he had his works and stuff. And there's a park that's dedicated to him. We live just a block or two away from the park, so we it's uh, the worker bees of the um, how can I say the different embassies. Um, they we all they all live kind of in this general area. It's very, very quiet, but well secured generally in comparison to other places. And you tend to just walk around in, in a way that is rarely you even hear the, the sirens from the hospital that's on the corner or anything like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, It's just that kind of situation. So you can go out at two o'clock in the morning and walk. And, and uh, because you just... That because you feel like it, you know, and sit in the dark park watching a statue, you know, or something on a bench until the sun comes up, no problem. You might see one or two foot police, but that's it. In general, everybody knows where everybody is. Now you're reaching out across the world with your master class series, and that's interesting. <laughs> and especially from after uh, describing what I just described, so yeah, it falls right into play with being stress-free. <laughs> <laughs> where, where did the idea for a stress? I mean, you have, the first one was solidifying the foundation of the rhythm section. Yeah, mm-hmm. coming up June twentieth, developing your weak side to equal your strong side, which I know as a drummer mm-hmm. is important—the weak hand and the weak foot—and one would think so. The thing is, is most drummers don't deal with that. You know, the, it's all about don't worry, I'm not going to sound bad, and I'm going to give it my best shot. And you know, you come in with two wheels running, the other wheel and the other wheels a little bit smaller. So you you know you're going like this all the time, and you you're giving it your best shot, and that that that's where you tend to stand out more than anybody else because you are, for what you have to offer, out of balance. And so the whole idea is to address the 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 elements that 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 uh, that really poke your ego and say, hey. You know, you can't play that well. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you have to turn around and look at yourself in the mirror and go, uh, uh, yeah, I guess you're right <laughs> to yourself, you know. But the whole objective is to try to balance things out and find out what the problems are and where, where they lay and then start. Because you have to always crawl before you walk. I remember in our interview, we were talking about the two things that a lot of drum, drummers are weaker on is a sense of timing and they lack a foundation. It's kind of like mm. wanting to learn all the cool stuff before having the the basics and doing all the rudimentary stuff that leads mm-hmm. up to being able to play the cool stuff. Yes. And the main thing is uh, to go back. Well, this is something I learned when I was with the Mahavishnu Orchestra. I I kept kicking the bass drum as if, you know, it was for all I was worth, you know, with my whole leg from the thigh down, top of the thigh down, get that big boom, you know. And yeah, broke a lot of bass drum heads. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, 
because it was so loud and 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 so many times out of sync with everything else, they turned me down. Couldn't hear. So finally, I started. Saying, hey, I gotta. Why am I doing this? Got to be an easier way to play this thing, you know. Yeah. And so I'd go off by myself, be on especially on rehearsals or, or I should say sound checks prior to sound check. Sit at the drum, bass drum alone. And try to understand the technique of playing a bass drum. Yep. Most artists, I feel, don't even come close to doing that because they they don't want to really. First and foremost, it's not. It's like, man, I don't need to do that. I mean, I'm working. You know, yeah. I'm just gonna get. And that's a natural tendency, and it's 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 a it's a it's a, a real criticism. And you go, okay, but what if you don't? Focus on those little things that are looming giants in the background can no way move past a certain point in your performance and therefore not accurately or in or effectively contribute yeah. to what everyone else is doing. And so these are the reasons that this, this is the whole objective for me is to say to point these things out, not just yakking and talking, but OK, watch me what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about because actions always speak a lot louder than words. So also, you know, with the, my side jams podcast thing I like to do is I talk to people sort of about their, their passions outside of music, the things that mm -hmm. make them happy. So yeah. I was curious what you wanted to talk about, what, uh, what things you're into. I've had people do all sorts of things from traveling to cooking to uh, piloting, mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> collecting yeah. things. What makes you happy outside of music? Uh, photography. Oh, yeah, so if you go to my Facebook page, there's loads of stuff there. But that's been happening since I was in, well, I started taking pictures back in 1964, 63, my Yashica box camera, and it's been with me ever since. I mean, when I went into the Army, that was my second military occupational status was to be a photographer. Uh, first in the army band, and then if I, that didn't work out, then I'd go into photography and take shots for aerial and all of that. Yeah, I'm actually seeing your photos here from the Art of the Rhythm section retreat. This is in 2017. These are more recent photos. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Black and do you mostly do mainly shoot in black and white? Do you shoot black and white in color? I lose anything. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's a conglomeration of all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously, this is this is something you do outside of music. So, what first got you into just picking up a camera? I I felt like I wanted to turn what I heard into something visual, and that was the way I wanted to do it. I didn't want to paint. My perspectives in terms of angles and all of that didn't work somehow. It just to put it on a two dimensional object called a piece of paper. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I just could I couldn't get that one happening. Not even to make a a vase and, and, you know, in school, it was nuts. It just didn't work. So then I found this thing called a camera, you know, and I decided to start to mess with it. Um, made a box camera once, you know, um, with, with a pinhole and it all, you know, all this stuff started to come together. And I went, wow, you know, what I can do. And one thing led to the other. That was it. Just never left. What kind of things did you start shooting initially? landscapes you know they were they were they didn't move <laughs> <laughs> easier to shoot 
<laughs> they didn't move the stage in the right place, and the whole thing was that you, act, you just had to get the horizon right, right, and 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 sort of figure out the the the, the color scheme. Primarily for me, it was black and white back then because I was I was uh, into the the F sixty four group uh, with uh, Ansel Adams and yeah people like that, and they were running, you know, from zero to one, zero to ten. You know, it was like from black to white, and you had to come up with a different shades of grays and that kind of stuff. It was all pretty much trying to get it right in the mind first before you're looking at any any mechanical devices and making my mistakes as I went. Yeah. Yeah, I went to film school at NYU, so we had to take a photography class. And I mean, I, my yeah. dad is an, am, an amateur photographer, and he, he actually, mm-hmm. I inherited his eye because he really, he knew how to frame photos. I guess I would just see things. And he, I learned, I was always good at framing things. It never really mm-hmm. was hard. It, one of the things that always drove me nuts, especially with all those terrible point and shoots we had before digital photography came into play yeah, you know, film yeah. still looks better it was just like people would i remember I, I someone took a photo of me once and it was like me on the beach and my head was like at the bottom center of the frame and then the rest was like the yeah. sand and the water i'm like that's great but basically i look like a head just floating <laughs> like and it's amazing to me how people didn't know how to frame a photo but now with with smartphones i think actually people are learning to not not like they're mm-hmm. becoming photographic geniuses, but they're learning to take better shots. Yeah, they take the time learning to understand the language of photography on a basic level that they people didn't before. I think about the patience, you know, that you have that comes with taking a taking a, a proper photo. You, know, you take your time to stop and think, what is it I want to have in this, you know, and and line it up properly. And that's a that was a big thing for me as well. I took. God, I don't know. It seemed like millions of shots that made no sense. Yeah. That I would keep everything and then choose from the you know, the one image. Well, that's probably the one. Until <laughs> you know, and but I won't throw the rest away because I might change my mind, you know, or something stupid like this. So information, information, lots of paper. Um I was not an environmental, environmentally friendly photographer. I mean, oh boy, you went through a lot of prints, threw a lot of stuff away, a lot and, of chemicals. Yeah, HC one ten, you know, the whole nine yards, you know, and um, D seventy six, you know. So we we doing all of that stuff back then. That's why I was in the army. So you're around, yeah, you're around twenty then when you started doing a lot of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sixty five, sixty four, sixty five. I I was in the army and uh, I was about twenty. Yeah. And so was it was it rural landscapes? Did you also have cityscapes? Was it a mixed combination? Yeah, definitely wasn't too rural. I was a city kid, you know, from the time I came from Panama, got to New York. Yeah. Uh, joined the Army and never left, never left New York. Uh, never left the New York City metropolitan area, I should say to be correct. I went from... Uh, I went right into the United States Army in uh, on the just below the Verrazano Narrows Bridge at the, um, the 378th Army Band. Yeah, um, was there for a while until they had decided to break that up, and then they moved me to Fort Dix, which was <laughs> still the New York City metropolitan <laughs> area. And uh, I got out of the Army, away. and oh, I didn't mind. I was, I was most of the time I was the only time I spent a, a lot of time on the Army base. Was in Fort Dix. The rest of the time, I was home. They were paying me ten bucks a day to, to not not stay on the base, you know. And uh, yeah. I said, "Yeah, I'll take it." And I lived in in, um, in South Ozone Park at that point with my mother and my brother. So you had, you had a dark room at home. Uh yeah, mm-hmm. 
And so it was a closet. I wouldn't call it a room. Well, you could call it a room, but it was definitely two two. <laughs> it by was a two, dark room. <laughs> two two by two. Yeah, dark room, two meters square. You know. <laughs> well, my dad used to do it in the laundry room. Uh-huh. So I grew up in a house in the suburbs of Boston, and we had a two-story mm-hmm. house. But the the third the basement was so big it was like a third floor. Yeah, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so the laundry room was kind of cramped right in the corner. There was enough space for him. Mm-hmm. I remember at NYU, at my freshman year, I actually I wasn't going to be able to get all the prints done I needed for my final, mm-hmm. uh, like the final series of photos I had to do. So I actually was able to go home and spend an entire weekend with my dad just cranking out an incredible wow. number of prints. And I was lucky because it was hard because you only had so many resources. And again, it's kind of what it comes down to, I say, in life. It's, it's either money, connections, resources, something. You have a combination of the three that helps out mm-hmm. regardless of talent. I, mean, I don't know if I could have finished. I mean, you know, I don't know if I could have finished all that stuff. Mm-hmm. possibly Damn. but it was good it's good to have that luxury you're able to do it at home yeah, as, sure. long as, as long as your sibling any siblings or family are walking in and being like hey mm-hmm. billy what's going mm-hmm. on there you go there did it ever go. happen did somebody come in and like ruin the yeah 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 i mean uh you know everything on the red light you know and red light outside red light inside and all of a sudden billy the food's you know the food's getting cold <laughs> open the door <laughs> And, I uh, just got yeah. the perfect print because yeah. that's the difference with with between digital and you know the original film photographies. You had to spend the time and you had to tweak everything yourself, you know, expose your mm-hmm. time and everything else. So you could manipulate the image, which is mm-hmm. some people like that. I mean, my dad's been very impressed. He's a Nikon guy. He's very impressed mm-hmm. with digital, mm-hmm. but still, I think he preferred to play around in the darkroom and do yeah. it himself rather than the Photoshop idea. Every so, uh, yeah. I won't th- I won't throw away Photoshop, not at all. <laughs> but now <laughs> I'm spoiled. But uh, yeah, I get it. Yeah, that's for sure. Do you see what you started with landscapes, and then what, it, when did it evolve to change it, it, to people? It, it evolved. It evolved to people when I when I when I I don't know. It was kind of how can I put it? Natural transition. Someone on the bench. Uh, how can I put this? Remember Alfred Staglitz? No, remember, okay, little guy. I lived at one point in time, this had to be 19, he was still around in the 70s. Yeah. Um, And he was, of course, quite eccentric. And I had a Hasselblad with me, just a a C500. And I was, I used to walk the uh, sheep meadow at because uh, it was very close to where I was living then in mm-hmm. an apartment uh, uh, on the west side around 80, 86th street um, by the reservoir, reservoir. And why I bring this up is that it hit me when he, when he approached me, um, it was, it was, just, it, was it was like a, seeing history walk by me. Like yeah. an oracle in, uh, coming out of nowhere and going into nowhere. I don't know, but it was on the on the walkway, and and uh, I was lining something up with some kids playing football in the, yeah. in, on, the on the sheet metal. The kid that I was looking at was a young person, the the youngest son of the great uh, Arif Mardin, uh, was a great uh, record record producer of Aretha Franklin and people like this. Yeah. And they lived in the neighborhood, and they were just having a good time, just fooling around. They were, it, it just reminded. He walks by and, and he says to me, he says, he sees the the, the hospital. Body, he looks at me and, and he looks up and he says, 
F five six at uh, at one one twenty fifth of a second, uh, <laughs> and he kept walking, and I that's exactly what I had in my hand, <laughs> and I'm looking at him, and I that's Stieglitz, and I just go like this, and little, and it's it's late spring, early summer, and he's yeah. wearing a winter coat, and, and I had, I mean it was like weird. And that stayed in my mind to when I started to shoot, I think a lot was with Horace Silver in 1968. Mm -hmm. Um, What I felt was was meaningful shots of people. Right. And I did my first album cover there for Blue Note. It's called uh, Serenade to a Soul Sister on, on Blue Note. And Horace had a girlfriend or a good a, a, a friend. I don't know how, if it was a, if the whole personal relationship, what it was, I don't know. Her name was Jane. I can't remember her last name, and I feel very bad because I can't remember her last name because she was in my homeroom class at Music and Art High School in Harlem. Mm. And I still didn't know, and she played violin. She walked around. She came around with him a few occasions, and we talked a little bit, but not very much. And I said, "Hey, how you doing?" Blah 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 blah. But I never, never thought about her. And when I when he told me he wanted her to be on the album cover, I was like, "Yeah, see your no, hair, yeah, really." And all of a sudden, a, a new world kind of opened up, you know. And he himself wanted the album cover to look a certain way. So he he got me at a really cheap price because I was already playing drums in the band. You know? <laughs> That's right. You're on the album. <laughs> and, and yeah. So, I mean, what, what am I supposed to say? No. You know, he said, hey, Billy, you got, a, you got a camera. Come with me. You know, I'm going, okay. Take a picture of Jamie over here. Or take a picture. And I went, I'm doing this. And I'm going, I like this. I like this. You know? a, lot of, a lot of earth tones, too, in this cover. Yeah. It, it, Whatever it, it was like again, more what he more what he wanted than what I wanted. I mean, my main yeah. thing was just to click the pick, <clears throat> but it just opened up the door for me. Now, did you did you do other covers for Blue Note? Did I do other covers for Blue Note? I don't think I did. No, just another, that one. Were there any other album covers you did? Yeah, um, a funky thigh to sings that would be on Atlantic. He's an orangutan on that cover. His name is Roger, and he's out of San Diego Zoo. Yeah, that's 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 cool, and that's you, and that's that's your. I mean, that's your album. Yeah. Ah, if you take a look at the the, the guy who took the cover, took the picture of me was a great photographer. I can't remember his name now. That uh, Atlantic uh, contracted to do it, but he, was, he lived out on San, in San Francisco. So the back cover is is a portrait of myself, and I don't know if you can see it, but right. uh, it's Jim. Oh, Jim. Uh, Jim. I can't remember Jim's last name now. Was, I'm actually going to look up the credits here right now. The credits yeah. to see what uh, so we have this. Mm-hmm. Jim Marshall. There you go. Mm-hmm. Jim Marshall. Mm-hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. So you shot this retreat. Are there any musicians you shot over the years? Musicians that I've shot over the years. Yeah, but I can't remember who. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do a lot of candid stuff, sort of sneaking around always, backstage at gigs or, or doing like live stuff? You just, yeah. Just shooting people. Yeah. What was your camera of choice? Actually, after the Yashica, it became the, the Nikon. Yeah. And it was Nikon for many years. 
actually, I did uh, for Atlantic, the Crosswinds album. Yep. I that that's a, that's Escape, and that's that was done in uh, down on Route One uh, near Monterey, you know, Carmel. Right. Crosswinds came out in 1970, 74, 73, 74. It was about five o'clock in the afternoon on uh, down there, man. It, it's so dramatic that I mean, landslides and, and mudslides and rain. I mean, the, the cypress trees, it's unbelievably dramatic. And it is actually, because the sky looks just very dramatic with the clouds. Yeah. I mean, it almost looks like an earth above earth. So what I did was I took the two and 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 it took the sky and inverted it, and so it sounds it looks like it's a, a cauldron of, of of air. Yeah, and it, it worked out really for, fine for that for that cover. Yeah, that's cool. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's it's a great way to express yourself in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I was interviewing Rick Allen from Def Leppard today about painting because he paints. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's another mm-hmm. way to use it, you know, to, to use your arm and your hands, you know, it's like to. Yeah, yeah. And to do yeah. that. I mean, it's, it's, I guess, it, since you do play jazz, you're trading one brush for another. <laughs> oh, that's a joke. Yes. There we go. <laughs> there we go. It's your basic okay. drum joke. Um, no, para boom, para bim, para boom. Yeah. <laughs> Although I don't notice you playing with brushes as much just because you've like, I, I always watch you with sticks, I, including a, including a, that li- a live video where you had two sticks in each hand at one point, which is a great, mm-hmm. that was a great. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's very, I mean, it's brushes have not been the, the instrument of choice in, in, on playing the drums for me for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. Only because of the type of music that I'm playing. Yeah. Um, I try to incorporate them depending on what I'm writing you know, music-wise, I mean, in terms of composition. But I'm not writing a lot of ballads. I'm not writing stuff that takes it in that direction because of the fact that I already take talk myself out of it when I think of whom I'm working with, uh, the musicians whom I'm playing, who yeah. are working, playing with me. It's a sophisticated instrument, the brush, to hold people's attention. Yeah. The music has to be written a certain way, and the musicians, ha- the character of the musicians, have to be correct. Most of these people, and this is no no uh, criticism negatively against them, want to play out and and offer themselves. They don't know about the brush and how it's used, or it was used, and where it would be used now in comparison yeah. to where it was before. The music doesn't, in their mind, they don't hear brushes. You know, I remember in CTI recordings all the way back then, Creed Taylor never wanted me to play with a brush ever. They never talked about that, yeah. You know, and it was just the way it was. So I, you know, I, 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 I find myself just writing little bit here or there, uh, and with the hopes that someday, maybe with orchestra or so, it would be a unique touch to just play this piece that I've written whatever it might be for that and uh, present that to the audience. Again, as the opposite of what people envision, quote unquote, uh, percussionists playing at the drum set would do. Yeah. You know? yeah. So you've had all these, with all these photographs, I mean, are there, have you ever done like a, an exhibition of some of your stuff? There was a place, yes, it, once, really once, a real, a full blown one. And it was called the Vincent Kling 
galleries and it was in Philadelphia. And that was back in whoa, 1984. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had a presentation done. I'd done a presentation. I'm trying to remember. I can't remember the name of the gallery now. Near, uh, it, it was in Paris, but I can't remember now. Where that was much later. Very rarely did I did I ever show my stuff. This is more for you. Yeah, it was actually it was a way to, especially with yeah, it was a way for me to to wind down after a show, which started my winding down after a show was actually waking up in the morning before breakfast to walk with a camera and think things through alone. I mean, just because it was just the way it was, was just me walking around anywhere from, from Stockholm, Sweden to Southern Italy, you know, uh, uh, just, just walking in towns and, looking in photo, taking photos just for the hell of it, for whatever I saw. It was wonderful to be in Rome, you know, and uh, yeah. to to just walk at maybe 6 o'clock, 6.30 in the morning in the summer, uh, sit down in the piazza and have a, have a double espresso, or to, to be in Paris and sit down near the Olympia and, again, you know, have have a, a big coffee, man, and a strong and uh, baguette, and you know, all of this. You know, it's, this is a wonderful place, way to, and just take shots of people going by. Can't do that now because people think that you're, you know, you're, you're setting them up for something that's coming that's negative. You know, so you just don't, you just don't sit down and take pictures of people because the police want to know why you're taking pictures of people. I know, isn't it weird? Like we we live in this world now where. I thought about this, even because everyone has a phone and everyone's even I even when I'm walking down the street mm-hmm. and I end up in someone's shot. I usually just figure it's mm-hmm. just a random thing going on. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. everyone gets suspicious. And it's mm-hmm. it's like back then that people weren't as camera ready as they are now. I look at mm-hmm. young, you know, I'm Generation X and I look at younger generations like the millennials and Gen Z. They've grown up in front of cameras, essentially, right. because of all the mm-hmm. phones that they're in their parents hands, the iPads, everything mm-hmm. else. Whereas when I was a kid, it was not the same thing. I remember doing, you know, VHS, doing VHS in high school yeah. back, you know, back yeah. in the eighties. And that was a different thing. And I remember once I was, when I was in film school, a bunch of us were, I think we were just standing by the checkout place for all the gear. And we were talking and this one guy who was one of our fellow students was just testing the cameras, video camera and roaming around us. And we actually mm-hmm. didn't pay attention to it. And he was actually rather impressed that we weren't aware of the camera, but then we, we, mm-hmm. we were studying that. Mm-hmm. Whereas like now it's, it's almost like, I mean, look on YouTube and all these people, it's kind of crazy. Like everybody is just so mm-hmm. almost too comfortable in front mm-hmm. of a camera. Mm-hmm. There is something about that. I guess back then, I don't know. I mean, have you, so do you, so do you feel you've, you obviously feel more self-conscious these days about just going out and randomly shooting people? Yeah, sure. I am. And, and now the funny part is, is that when I take a camera, I normally take a monopod yeah. because, that kind of signals that you know what I'm shooting. Uh, that I'm 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 not just randomly shoot, shooting at somebody or anything like that. It was like I'm making a scene and sitting, yeah. you know, and, and all of a sudden it it sends the right message generally to the public. You know, this is something for the arts. This is not something I'm trying to figure out who's living in this building or that building or something. You know. 
So are there any interesting photos you took of people over the years, something, a moment that you captured that surprised you or excited you? Yeah, but I can't tell you offhand what. I wish <laughs> I could, but I can't. Honestly, I, I Good old 76 is coming up down the road. But even before 77, I can't even know how old I'm getting. Some things just forget what happened when. It, it's, it's all so impromptu. It, it just comes and you go, oh, yeah, I like that book. And it's yeah. done. Many times it's, it's of my musicians in my band, my European band, or so rehearsals and all. Everybody knows me as walking around. I'm, we're practicing, and I have a camera. I have a Leica on my back. I mean, because fundamentally, I've been working for that com- with that company for many years. Uh, after I left, uh, I put down my Nikon's. That's when I say left Nik- 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 Nikon. I did. I had owned a, a set of Nikon. I gave so them Nikon to my is daughter. the Japanese pronunciation, as opposed to the way we've been yeah. saying it wrong in the states now. <laughs> what can I say? And then. <laughs> Then, then I ended up with uh, with Leica, so an M series, and you know now I've graduated to things like the the double O seven and the and the and the O the O twos. But the thing is, is that so I'm 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 just on my drums, and I, I have one on my back, you know, just under my arm like this, and then I just goes like this, and I shoot, and I, I'm playing <laughs> because you can do it with a digital camera. You can the M series, not you know the M series is like the it, it's an M10, and I'm like, okay. So you're talking <laughs> about shooting people in your own band and taking shots of people in your own I band. I do a lot of people, yeah. I mean, I'm, I just uh, people in my band, uh, technicians, um, the whole scene of, of uh, uh, preparing and uh, uh, setting up and, and, and tearing down. Yeah. If I see something that I felt was, was uh, very uh, special for me uh, about a specific situation, then I take it, you know. And it's it's just happens that way. I, sometimes personalities, new personalities in the band, especially that uh, I'm just trying to get to know. Uh, yeah. I need sometimes I need a an image to to just put in front of my face for a minute. You know, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and I mean you've traveled all over the world. Have you taken your cameras pretty much everywhere that you've been? Oh yeah, oh yeah. What are some of the more interesting countries that you've shot things in? Uh, Japan. I was in Sendai. I was in Hiroshima. Mm. Back in 70, at, yeah, it was 73, towards the end of the year. I'd already recorded Spectrum, but it wasn't, it wasn't released yet. Okay. I was sitting in the Atomic Park in Hiroshima. And uh, I was contemplating, which I did, I did not do. I couldn't make, I couldn't get, make myself do it. Go to the museum to see the what was left over from the people who had many of the people who had been in the blast of the, the first atomic bomb. It was yeah. just, but I was sitting unknowingly on a bench, which you could do. Yeah, there was no problem. It was, it wasn't going to go away next to the shadow of someone who was sitting on the bench. Uh, when that, when that thing, this bench was actually there. Wow. The, the bomb exploded approximately a hundred meters above the ground, yeah. above this building. And it left the framework of the dome of the building in place and took all the cement away. The light was so bright wow. 
that it took away the physically the people, but left the shadow of the people on the on the area. So on benches where people were sitting, yeah, all of that stuff just stayed like it was, except there were no the people weren't the hard every all hard matter, but then the shadows stayed where they used to be. Yeah. And here I am sitting on this, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm, I noticed a little bit, it was gray there, a stream that runs through it. Yeah. And trees with lots of, I guess, small prayer notes and stuff like this. I was looking over at this museum so, because there was a band there before us, I think. We were playing... We were following each other around. It was Santana Band. Oh, wow. They were in Japan exactly right then. And it was the first and last trip for the Mahavishnu Orchestra the, for the original MO. We never went back to, J- to Japan as the five of us. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Carlos and them went into this thing to see what it was like. And following them was uh, a few different groups of young young kids, like in kindergarten, uh, five years old, six years old. And then they were, they were happy, excited and going to, coming out the other side were kids their age, very, very sad, very quiet, very much cry, uh, crying. Um, uh, what they'd seen, it didn't go over well. I, I said, I don't think I need this. And it, I don't know where it came from. I mean, I have pictures of that, and I have I have a picture, uh, the sound file that came out of all of that was a piece called Heather, and that was on the Crosswinds album. Yeah, that was 1973, 1984. I go to Sendai, and I'm playing in the Gil Evans Orchestra. Okay, in Sendai. Amazing place. It's a outdoor amusement park. Was there? Right. Okay. Just very easily seen was this huge uh, atomic reactor plant that now is closed because of what happened on the tsunami when it it hit Sendai. Yep. Okay. I mean. Fast forward to 2000, year 2000, okay. My friend calls me from England and said, you won't believe it. I, uh, you have to listen to this rendition of Heather and how they put it together. I never knew who did it to this day. The piece that I wrote on my Crossman's album mm-hmm. that Michael Brecker played on, which in itself was a story. He came late to Jimmy to Hendrix's studio. He lost his saxophones in, the, in a taxi cab. Oh, my God. Yeah. He went to Manny's and got a saxophone. Literally. This is the, the as I remember it. A brand new saxophone in a box came in and played this solo. First time. He tried many times after that, but it was this solo. And this is the solo that you hear that is done on Heather that they put two an image of the the waters coming in and covering Sendai to know that I did all of that and it ended up there. And I still to this day don't know who on, on it was, it was on for a very long time. It was on YouTube. Yeah. 
It's not there anymore. I haven't looked lately, but it it was. I I don't know how they got. No one asked my permission. I I would have gladly given it. I mean, it was yeah. just something that somebody put together, and it it's here and it was gone, just like Stieglitz. I mean, something. It's, these kind of things happen in, in my life. I'm sure. I, I I'm not surprised if it happened to other people yeah. in their own lives. But these things and they're, they're like not cornerstones, but like there's just mile markers in your in your life, and you go. What the heck? How did that happen? You know? Yeah. What is this saying? And, and you know, the the relationship of everything. It's a ballad. It's a it's 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 a haunting ballad, and and I just go. Oh, I'm blessed. I mean, to have had this experience, and you know, for it to come full circle in that kind of way, to mean so many different things. You know. Yeah, I mean, having some place that you photographed to inspiring yeah. a song, and then coming yeah. back into a visual element. Yeah. representation yeah like that how much did your photography influence your music the way you saw the world through that lens and then the way you saw it when you were in your mind I you're found, composing i found it to be the opposite uh, really yeah the found, music influenced the photography yeah i mean i i play and then i i'd i'd see something and i'd shoot it when it, it would tie in it, it, it i can't it's, and then I'm, I'm saying that to, and, my, and my other self is saying, well, not really, man. But it is true. Sometimes it went one way and then went the other way. You know? and you, would, would you get ideas for shooting stuff from there or you were, were you playing in a certain place and then suddenly you had to go photograph something? Yeah, I, it was uh, sometimes I remember vaguely playing Olympia in Paris and there was a place called there was a brasserie near Olympia where you got this, you got incredible Chateaubriand. Um, it was this great steak. Yeah. Really the top line, you know, really incredible. And f- what we call French fries. But it was just a special, it was just a yeah. dish. Yeah. And it inspired me to go there I, the, 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 the images of me being there, the image of me actually having a, a, one of the very few out-of-body experiences in performance that I ever had, which was there in Olympia uh, in the summer of 72, I think, mm. where we were playing and I was so tired. Uh, we'd been touring and I fell asleep on the drum set. I mean, it's in the middle of the gig, it was on a ballad, you know, and but yet I could see myself launched over from the upper balcony on stage, and I was up in the balcony watching me play, and and uh, no, how that was like, it wasn't the first, it wasn't the first time, but it was at least the second time that that happened to me, and um, I was like, wow. The band sounded great, you know, and I wasn't doing a whole lot. I mean, I, <laughs> no, at that I, moment you, know, you weren't. <laughs> my hands, I couldn't tell if my hands were moving or not, you know. And then finally, towards the end, poof, I was back there again. And uh, then went to get something to eat, you know, at the Brasserie, which was not, it was, and, and I took shots of, of that general area. It's interesting when I was, uh, when I was making movies, short films, you know, I, I love to dissect song structures. I mean, I was a heavy metal kid, and my drum teacher actually got me into your playing. He got me into Spectrum, and then I started 
I think probably by college starting to investigate your music. And I got into like world music. I mean, I know you played with mm-hmm. Womad and you did a whole bunch of other stuff. And I'm mm-hmm. Peter Gabriel mm-hmm. was big in the world music thing, which I'm surprised mm-hmm. hasn't come back. And we're seeing more international flavors in pop music. But there was that whole world music and world fusion thing mm-hmm. happening in the 90s. But I remember I would I like to put dream sequences in movies. And I started to structure a lot of my films like short songs. So like there'd be sort of like a cor- like a verse, a pre-chorus, a chorus, you know, and I would sort of repeat and then I have a break. And it was almost like I was wow. informed by kind of trying to come up with structures. And I didn't, after all, it becomes a formula and you don't want it to be. But I, I always like to dissect that because popular music fell back on structures. And my favorite groups, we kind of defy that. Right. Um, and they would, you know, they would, it wouldn't be just like ABC, you know, ABC or whatever, mm-hmm. like they're repeating mm-hmm. the, the breakover or the, the yeah, course yeah, at sure. the end. Mm-hmm. It would be like, you know, having an extended coda, having like mm-hmm. two or three different breaks in the middle that just changed mm-hmm. or having a riff that was played four times and then disappears and never hear from it. And I like that. And of course, jazz <laughs> goes off, depending on who you're, which, which group you're talking about, will go off on all sorts of different tangents. Mm-hmm. But I like, I like the more progressive element of that in rock music without it being necessarily proggy. I just like mm-hmm. that. So it is funny how like one art form can in- influence another in that way. Do you think you'll ever collect any of your other photos? Or any, is there any, are any photos you'd like to put together in a book or put online oh, sure, for your fans sure. to see? I would love to. Yeah. I mean, I have, I just haven't had the, the kind of time that I would feel comfortable doing that because I, I mean, it's like once I start something and, and all of a sudden I, I just go, Hey, something, someone says like, why for it? We got to eat, you know. So, um, this is not going <laughs> to. So we better play a couple of gigs, you know, get something happen. And I just don't get around to doing it again for a little yeah. while, you know. And it's, it's a question of having that luxury. Right now, I've been forced into a position which is uh, to, uh, of having a lot of time because of COVID. Yeah. And so instead of doing that, I had to go and and uh get this done which is uh, uh had my hip replaced so oh wow that takes a that where i was going <laughs> to do some some work it's not so easy walking around right now you know how, how long it, how long did they say with the cover the recovery it started february 7th it, it, it takes about 18 weeks or so to up to because you got to learn to walk again yeah so i'm learning you know it's just you got to take it and the little the little uh, improvements that you that are made are major in comparison but it's it's funny how it's like watching somebody uh, a watchmaker here is it's common it, it to the to the naked eye if you're not used to it their hands aren't moving yeah it's only their fingers or one or two you know and and they're not moving very fast at all and they need to focus. So the body is very, very loose. And the hands are like this. And you may see something. And then you see what they're working on. Yeah. It's a hand, a watch. I mean, like all the parts and how small they are and the magnification of glasses. And, and you realize, wow, that's what it is like with all the, the nerves in the side of the hip, it's like they got to re- reattach correctly. It takes time. The itching that goes on in this whole area while uh-huh. that's happening is off the hook, you know, and, and and one has to have another kind of patience not to scratch it, you know, because it's, 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 uh, it can be a problem if you do a major one and it, it sets you back and you have to maybe go back and have it redone again.
you know, so I know you're, you're drawing to think about also, so you have to make some, I guess, gradual progress on that too. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, again, it's, it's, it's such an amazing accomplishment to be able to be sitting at a drum set, not, not the part that gets you to sit. That part yeah. is painful. The part that when you have to get up is painful, but the part sitting down is okay, you know. So you're sitting in the mitten. So you you're at the eye of the hurricane at that point in time. Yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, and I'm and I'm not, I can't raise my left leg. I've got to only raise my ankle, and to play the hi hat, you know. And and, and uh, it's all these little things, and I'm, I'm so frustrated, you know. At the same time, there's a a certain amount of pain that goes along with this. That goes, uh, no, you can't do that yet. So be careful. <laughs> Or, or, or I will prod you again, and you go, ah, no, I can't do this, you know. And he goes, right, right, do that, do you know? These things are okay, but and you turn, you you tend to forcibly learn what works if you're looking to play musically, yeah, and with as little stress as possible. What can you get away with? In essence, it's a certain, it's a wonderful way to put it, to to make it appear. That you have it all together, if nothing else, you know. And it there are ways. The mind is amazing. You know, when you have to do certain things, wow, what you can do, you know, if the situation presents itself and it's necessary to really get it done, then yeah, mind is working. That's what it's all about, man. You know, one thing that's the last thing I want to ask about because you were talking about you shooting with a Leica recently. Mm-hmm. As for some people, you're talking about luxury, and you know, it's like. For some people, that's like sort of the Rolls Royce, or that's like a luxury car of cameras. You know, mm-hmm. how's that different and different than shooting with your past cameras? It's a glass, primarily. Betelar is uh, very, very special. Uh, Nikon, yeah, okay, but Betelar, it's it's another it's another world. Everything is so incredibly clear. I never lose sight of how much. Uh, there, there's so how many geniuses there are around. I mean, I just did just tuning into to um, the maker of Tesla. The, I forget his name now. And he was talking about the fact that he does have Aspergers. Oh, Elon Musk, yeah, yeah, and and what he what he envisions, you know, you know, landing, not taking off in the ship, coming back in the same ship, and landing in the same place. And he did it, you know. Um, and it, it, this this particular vehicle is possible. Yeah. Or when those kids were uh, spelunking in the in the cave, and they got they they ended up in a, in an air pocket a few miles inside the cave. Yeah. And the only way you could get to it was something that he created just on the spur of the moment to save all these kids. Yeah. That nobody else thought of. And you had to be. More, I think one or two guys passed away because they couldn't. I mean, the claustrophobia and the whole bit—they just they, they lost it. Yeah, but it worked, you know. It, and you, you, I mean, I just think about it. You, it's 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 difficult. Some some people have uh, you give up one thing for the other. He has Asperger's, okay, but at the same time, without him, we wouldn't have the electric car uh, on the level on the scale that it, it's there. Uh, for whatever the reason, and it's not just the, the end product of the vehicle, the administration, the organization of it all. Right, it's got to be somebody at the top, and 
yeah, it, 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 he's not going to be well-loved by everybody, and nor will he even understand himself why he's doing what he's doing, but it's working. But for him, the way it happens, it's, he speaks about it. Yeah. And, it, and it's like, yeah, you know, and he understands that everybody can't do this. I've got something that I pay a price for in another way, whatever that might be. You walk away going, yeah, there's, an, there's the yin and yang in everything, you know, live with it somehow. Well, thank you very much again. Since it's like I think the third the third time we've spoken now. Mm-hmm. Cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. and good luck with the masterclass. Well, now you can go back to bed. <laughs> oh, you bet. No problem. And I'm going to go to bed soon because it's close to my bedtime, being three thirty in the morning here. Yeah, I hear you. I hear so <laughs> pleasant dreams. <laughs> thank you again. Okay, man. Take care. All right. And hopefully, hopefully, talk to you soon. I hope so. Take care. Thanks. Bye bye. Good night. That wraps up the latest Side Jams. Please join me for the next episode, which will feature singer and Canadian rock icon, Lee Aaron. As always, my theme music comes from Fox and the Law, licensed through AudioSocket. One additional note, following the next episode, Side Jams will also be a video podcast. The first two interviewees will be Andy Beersack from Black Veil Brides and Buzz Osborne from The Melvins. Thank you very much for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.